I was born in India in 1981, but I was raised in Australia. I was adopted when I was six months old. Six months old. How did that happen? So it's a bit of a story, but I was abandoned at birth in India. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently I was conceived out of wedlock and within the Hindu system. That's a pretty insulting and, and bad thing to have happen. So I was placed into an orphanage and unable to be adopted because within the caste system and the Hindu system, they believe what you've done in your previous life determines the circumstances amidst which you're born. And so I was placed into an orphanage and for the first six months of my life sort of stayed there. And and as the story goes, a lady at the orphanage who was caring for me took a real liking to me. And one night she grabbed me and she smuggled me across a border to a neighboring state where she bribed some nuns with cash to say that I was actually dumped on their doorstep and my birth certificate could be changed and I could be adopted under that state's law. And so that was the the first part of my life. But all, all the while that was happening, there was a family in 1977 in Australia who applied for an adoption. They heard a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape. They had two biological kids of their own, a Christian family. But after four years of that process, they'd kind of given up hope and they decided to move on. They spent the money they had put aside for an adoption on a trip to America with their daughters as a way of moving on and sort of starting a new chapter of life. Anyway, they got back from that holiday and they got a phone call saying that the adoption's gone through and that your son will be at the airport at the weekend. Oh my goodness. As you can imagine, that was a massive (laughs) shock to them. They uh, prayed out of that night and the next day, my mum was driving a car with her two daughters in it. She had a car crash, wrote the car off without a scratch or a bruise to anyone in the car. And she said, what was a miracle was that two days later, the day before I arrived in Sydney, the insurance money had been returned to her bank account. But more than that, it was to the exact dollar that was needed to pay for my adoption. Wow, God provides, eh? Absolutely. Incredible. So what was life like for you growing up in that family? Difficult and interesting. I mean, in, in family sense, it was brilliant. I mean, I had a absolutely wonderful set of parents. I have two brilliant sisters. But I grew up in the Sutherland Shire, which is in Sydney, and it is probably the, the waspiest, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, one of the most white areas in that time in the 80s of Australia. And so being a sort of a black kid in a white family, it came with a lot of racism. I remember in uh, infant school walking across the playground and having a girl call me a black mother and spitting all over me. And uh, I remember all sorts of different racism and times over the years Mm. of growing up. And so there were, it was sweet and sour, you know, there was, there was brilliant parts of living in community in Australia in the eighties, all your neighbors playing cricket on the streets, all of those kind of things, right? They didn't see color. There was nothing about that. But then there was the the sour, which was the times where you would be out in different circles moving, and no matter where you went, they will always see the colour of your skin first. Mm. And tell us about your faith journey. So that's uh, something that I, I love in the sense that, you know, it's I grew up in a Christian home. I 
have always, well, one of the main things, I guess, living as an adopted kid, and even for any one of us, we look for identity and belonging. And the reality was that, again, living as a sort of a black kid in a white family, there were elements that I never felt I belonged in. But the one place I always felt that I had a family was church. And so I grew up in an Anglican church, but every time I would go there, I felt as though I was part of a family. There was no difference in color of your skin or makeup of your family. And so starting out in Sunday school, church, did all of those things, had my normal kind of teenage wayward years. But I remember in 1997, actually being at Hillsong Church and responding to an altar call. And we were just visiting there for some reason. But that was really where it all changed. It was where faith became alive and I was driven to the scriptures. And then my life, yeah, really, really was just set on course for a passionate, hopefully passionate and always getting more strong following of Jesus. Did everyone notice the change in your life? Uh, I would say they did. I mean, especially my school friends, you know, when you stop drinking and you stop swearing and all of all those kind of things that you would normally do um, in those kind of teenage rocky years, when, when I really stopped and cut them out and attributed it to, no, no, I want to do this because, not because Christianity tells me to do this, but because it's a challenge, I want to set myself linking it with my faith. Mm, and mm. so, yeah, in that sense, they definitely did notice the change. You have been in ministry for a number of years. Tell us a bit about how you started in ministry. Like, what did you do after school? How did you get into ministry after that? Yeah, so I started uh, off the back of school. I remember I started a psychology degree. I had these big kind of illustrious hope and dreams that uh, I would do psychology. Didn't even really know much about it. Just sounded like a flashy name and would make me feel smart. So, you know, the reality is that's probably why I went into it. I, I, I married that with um, Aboriginal studies, believe it or not at university. And what was funny with Aboriginal studies was that I was the darkest person in the class, but it was just a beautiful time because all of the other um, students in the class were Indigenous Australians. Mm. And so that again was another family and gave me this real love and passion for Indigenous Australia mm. and the history with that. Uh, but after 12 months of psychology, I realized it wasn't for me. I ended up working for a large sort of Christian retailer here in Australia. I was their music buyer and advertising manager for many years. And, you know, my job, it sounds fantastic, but my job was to sort of fly around the world, license music, introduce it to the Australian market and then sell it. And and that was a really, really great sort of 10 year period of my life. And, you know, I remember being in a room with a guy called Chris Tomlin, who I'm sure many of the listeners will know. And, and him saying, uh, what do you think of this song and playing How Great Is Our God on a Piano? And, you know, oh, the my re- goodness. The rest is history with that song. And so, Did you, did you say, yeah, I think it'll work? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to be honest, I don't know what I said, but all I know is that everywhere I go, even today, that song is still yeah. just a beautiful anthem of faith. And so that was my journey into sort of the, the world of Christian stuff. Mm. But after 10 years of working in retail and music, I really felt the Lord was calling me out. And so I started my own company working in Christian ticketing and music. And I've always had a dream for that, I guess, to run that parallel to something. Mm-hmm. I knew I love God. I love people. and I love building something out of nothing. It gets me out of bed every day of the week. And I wanted to work for charity. Mm. And so my sister said, Hey, there's this group online called open doors. You should go for a job there. And I went for their youth job. I didn't get it because I was overqualified. I went for their church job. I didn't get it because I was underqualified. And then two weeks later, they called me back and said, hey, our first choice for youth didn't take the job. Would you like it? And uh-huh. I said, I'd, lo- I'd love to go. Okay. And um, and then three years later, I took on the role of CEO. Mm. Well, it's an incredible ministry. And uh, I've got so many uh, great memories of people I've met in Open Doors over the years and stories I've heard. 
Uh, for those who don't know much about Open Doors, give us a snapshot of the ministry. Yeah, sure. So Open Doors is a ministry. It began in 1955, uh, started by a guy called Brother Andrew. He is probably most well-known for a book he wrote called God's Smuggler, whereby he would smuggle Bibles inside his Volkswagen Beetle behind the Iron Curtain to believers who, back in 1955, desperately needed the Word of God. And now more than 60 years on, the ministry has expanded to work in more than 70 countries. Mm. And we work with what's called the persecuted church, but the best way of articulating it is really saying it's wherever Christianity kind of bumps heads with other governments, religions, politics, and there's a fallout for believers, we work as a ministry. And so that's more than 70 countries now, and we, we do all sorts of different types of help. But the thing that is consistent throughout is that we always go to the local church and we ask them, how can we breathe life into what you're doing? And, and it's what I love about this ministry. I mean, you know, world history will tell you that it is indisputable that the local church as an institution has been synonymous with some of the best provision of hope, aid, justice, and safety throughout all time. And what I love about this ministry is we go to that that heavyweight of the world and say, mate, how can we breathe life into what you're doing and help you reach your community? Well, the Brother Andrew's story is certainly uh, an incredible one. And I remember years ago, I actually listened to the audio book of Brother Andrew, Light Force, a stirring account of the church court in the Middle East mm. uh, conflict and the crossfire there. And uh, he you know, was a part of uh, Bethlehem Bible College and would have Palestinian Christians and Jewish Messianic Christians who hated each other because that's the way they were raised. He would take them out into the desert and have a camp with them. And say, hey, we've got to love each other. (laughs) And force them to overcome their hatred because of their their racial, you know, upbringing, their background, and their, you know, and he he would see unity coming uh, in that part of the world. And and really, that is one of the amazing things about Open Doors. You bring believers together from all different backgrounds, don't you? Yeah. What I love about Brother Andrew, I know him well, and you know, today eighty nine years old and still as radical and passionate as you'll ever ever believe. But one of the things that has remained really consistent throughout the last 60 years in the face of what we've seen of a rise of radical Islam, a rise of radical Buddhism, radical Hinduism, and now what we would say is a rise of intolerant atheism in a lukewarm church, is we've seen that throughout that time, the stance has always been that we are pro-Jesus. Right? We're not against anything, whether it's Islam, whether it's Hinduism. It's not about what we stand against. It's actually about what we stand for. Yeah, that's good. And I think... You know, Palestine and Israel is a very, very touchy and divisive subject. But uh, And Brother Andrew, I know, has lost a lot of friends over that. But mm. he's, he says, and he said to me, he says, Mike, while there is one person who serves Jesus on either side of that wall, we will serve them. Yeah. And, and I love that because no one is beyond salvation. That's it. Absolutely. And and he, he's, his heart is to win souls. His heart is to strengthen those that remain, as it says in the book of Revelation. Uh, so good. Now, the other big thing uh, that uh, we talk about every year with Open Doors is the World Watch List. Uh, and earlier this year, it was released with North Korea at number one, as it has been for many years, uh, and Afghanistan uh, creeping up to number two, surprisingly, Tell us about those two nations. Firstly, North Korea. Tell us what you, what you're hearing from uh, uh, you know guys that you're working with about how how terrible it is there for believers. Yeah, sure. Well, the, the world watch list in and of itself, just to start with, is probably the most reliable reporting tool on persecution that is available to believers, but also people looking for changes and shifts in religious freedom. It began back in 1989 at the fall of the Berlin Wall, believe it or not. 
brother Andrew said to the CEO at that time, look, we really need to start predicting some other shifts and changes in the freedoms of religion. And off the back of that, in 1991, we released the first World Watch list. Now, I guess around 25, 27 years on, what we're seeing is US media pick it up, governments, uh, people are reporting on it, mainstream media, and they're using it as a really reliable source of information on persecution. It's audited, it's an index ranking. There are so many sort of um, checks and balances in place to make sure that that is a, a great tool. And so for us as a ministry, yes, it's what separates us and really points and stands us out. Uh, North Korea and Afghanistan, you're right. North Korea for well over a decade has been the most difficult place on the planet to follow Jesus. And I think the key thing here is often listeners will think it's all about Islam and Muslims and Christianity, but well, the number one place for more than a decade has nothing to do with Islam. In fact, it's got to do with communism and dictatorial paranoia. And for believers in that country, following Jesus comes at a great cost mm. and will often render themselves and their extended family in hard labor camps. And mm. so one of the costs of following Jesus in North Korea is that you can be imprisoned to what's called the fourth generation. Mm. So your decision to follow Jesus will affect your parents, your children, wow. their children. And that's why it comes at such a great, mm. great cost. Amazing. And now Afghanistan, sorry, off the back yep. of that, mm -hmm. it's only 0 0.6 points behind North Korea. And the difficulty there is Islamic oppression. But again, we talked about this briefly on the radio a few days ago, was mm -hmm. that it was the difference between smash and squeeze, right? Yeah. The Middle East is often that kind of in-your-face, explosive kind of persecution, where in Asia, it's really quite more restrictive. It becomes so hard to outwork your faith that it's basically called civil death. And so they're the two differences between North Korea and Afghanistan. Mm. And, of course, if people want to search up that list, they can go to opendoors.org.au and uh, you can see the world watch list there. Uh, interesting to see that India jumped a lot this year. Tell us a bit about India. Yeah, India is one to really watch. As far as uh, a country that desperately needs prayer, is that India, off the back of a new leadership there, Modi, who is a radical Hindu, and really wants to return India to its Hindu roots, what we're seeing is uh, uh, ethnic cleansing of sorts. We're seeing a RSS, a radical Hindu group there, have a self-proclaimed goal of eradicating Christianity from India by 2020. They are dropping leaflets and flyers in certain Christian towns saying you have 20 days to leave. It really is an alarming thing. We're seeing a rapid increase in not only the number of instances of persecution, but also the the, the sort of the impact of those, mm. you know, abuse, um, physical persecution, mm. and to pastors, to children, it really is increasing quickly. And it's something as a Western world we need to watch and pray for. Absolutely. Now, before we go, mate, uh, you know, one of the best things I learn every time I chat to you guys is different ways that we can pray for the persecuted church. Uh, speak to those listening right now and just coach us through how do we pray for persecuted Christians worldwide? Yeah, look, I remember... Three years ago, there was an attack at Easter in a place called Garissa in Kenya. A local Islamic extremist group stormed a Christian university, wanting to give Christians an Easter they'll never forget, and they proceeded to kill 148 students. And many of them, they lured under false pretenses out, saying, hey, look, if you come out, we'll protect you, and then they'd laugh as they killed them. I remember I was getting ready to speak at a big conference in Sydney as I started to get reports about this. And in that moment, I saw a lack of love, a lack of respect, a lack of grace. I saw hatred. And what's crazy is I saw all of those things in me mm. because the Bible says, bless those who persecute you. Do not curse and bless them. 
And what I realized was that my understanding of that had rendered me to think that it meant give them good things, but that's not what it's saying. Mm. It's almost like an Abrahamic blessing, asking that their descendants shall be saved. And so I look back and I realized, well, God used Saul to build the church as well as Paul. In fact, Saul was a catalyst to the Great Commission. So maybe our prayer for groups like this group in Kenya, Al-Shabaab or ISIS, should be less wipe them from the face of the planet, Lord, and be more, hey, bring your time of building the church to an end and convert them. And so the way it changed my prayer life in that moment was, number one, I pray for the persecutors now, because I promise you by time you have your mouth around a prayer for ISIS or the like, your heart's in the right place for those who suffer at the hands of groups like Mm, this. mm. And so number one is I pray for the persecutors that they will be saved. Number two is I pray for those people who suffer that they'll have strength. And number three is that I pray that in that moment, I will draw closer to God and that my heart will change and that my prejudices will drop because I realize that too often I'm led by prejudice, not by my passion and compassion for those people. Well, it's been inspirational to hear of what God is doing through Open Doors all over the world. And uh, Mike Urican, you're a history maker. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Once again, the website is opendoors.org.au. Thanks for joining us on History Makers. If you'd like to listen to this interview again, just go to historymakers.tv. There you'll find links to Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to our iTunes podcast or check out our YouTube clips. And you can find out about History Makers TV. We are a faith-based ministry and we appreciate every donation. You know, the vision of History Makers is to share the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations of the world. If you'd like to partner with us, send us an email, info at historymakersradio.com. God bless you. Have an awesome day. I'm Matt Prater. And why don't you go and make history? History Makers. History Makers is proudly sponsored by Bible League, who serve the local church and other partners around the world by providing Bibles, scripture materials and training to help people meet Jesus. They provide God's Word to a lost and needy world. Bible League plants Bibles in prisons, among persecuted Christians and in poor nations, bringing the love and light of Christ into many people's lives around the world. Make history today by joining our friends at Bible League and planting a Bible that will help someone meet Jesus. Go to bl.org.au. Station sponsor.